0: This is a Manhattan-bound B-Express train. The next stop is Grand
2: Street. Mind for the gap. Welcome to Skylines, the City Metric podcast. I'm John, and this is our 50th episode. It seems pretty crazy to me that I've now done... 50 of these things. It really is just me who's done them, because we've kind of had the re- revolving co-host thing. But yeah, so 50 episodes in, which seems pretty pretty crazy. If you've listened to all of them, then firstly, thank you. And secondly, what the hell's the matter with you? Uh, actually, a couple of days ago, someone told me that they just started listening to the podcast from the beginning, and we're going to plan to go all the way through from episode one. So, you know, Anthony, just so you know, I think that's wonderful, and also that you're insane. I, I can say that he he won't hear this one till like twenty nineteen or something. Uh, anyway, anyway, it's been a lot of fun. We've had, uh, as you'll know, uh, probably we've had three regular presenters. As you as you won't know, we've had now fifty seven different guests. I I actually went to the trouble of counting that. We've we've heard at various points from the mayors of Greater Manchester and the West Midlands. We've we've heard from the Radio Six DJ Stuart McEneaney, and we've heard from Neil Codling, the keyboard player from Sweet another guest actually was was benjamin barber who's one of the greatest urban theorists of our age who who sadly died earlier this year we've had messages from people who live or work in cities as far apart as berlin and toronto rotterdam singapore and lagos we've also talked more about the english metro mayors than anyone else alive i suspect probably including the mayors themselves which is you know that's probably been incredibly entertaining for the the 30 percent of the audience that's that's international i'm sure We've also, I think this is my proudest achievement. We've also managed to turn Labour's unsuccessful Tees Valley mayoral candidate Sue Jeffrey into a meme. So there you go. Best of all, I think about 30 episodes in, I finally found the noise reduction function on my podcasting software. So that's, that's hopefully made everyone's lives a little bit, a little bit better. Um, I had, I had some pretty big plans for this episode. You know, 50 is a nice round number. So the original plan was that I wanted to get Stephanie back in and for a change, rather than reading out your tweets in answer to one of our questions, we thought, you could ask us something. We, we we garnered some interesting questions that you know maybe we could talk about, and I thought maybe we we could we could do it over a couple of drinks as we get progressively tipsier as the podcast went on, because you know that believe it or not is also something that someone once asked us to do, and you know it felt like quite a nice way of of celebrating. Uh, we are we are still planning to do that one, with or without booze. I'm not sure. Just as soon as we can we can get our diaries to work, but sadly that's that's not this week. So instead, I've got a very special guest this week. It's me. Yep, for the 50th episode, I've turned into a megalomaniac and mine is literally the only voice you're going to hear today. Still listening? Okay, well, you had your chance. Um, A few weeks ago, a group of housing policy types asked me to come in and talk to them about the the politics of housing in the wake of the general election. Uh, I'm a big fan of my own voice, so I agreed the discussion that, that followed happened happened under chatham house rules so unfortunately you won't be able to hear any of that but but my speech didn't so you know had some time to kill so here it is for those who don't know me which i suspect is is many of you uh, I'm John Ellidge i work at the new statesman where i edit our website city metric which is about urbanism cities maps and all that kind of cool geek stuff um, I also write for The Guardian and anyone else who will have me, and I, housing is one of the things that I'm, I'm quite obsessed about, to be honest. It's, the, the New Statesman I is a small enough publication that being obsessed about something kind of enables you to become the in-house expert in it, which is kind of a, a nice, place, nice thing about working there. I was originally asked to speak for 40 minutes on uh, the general election of housing. That seems a little bit optimistic to me. It's, probably about twice as long as any speech I've ever given, Uh, at least five times as long as anyone will actually want to listen to me. So I figure I'll talk for maybe 15, 20 minutes, and then we'll just kind of have a a more general chat. Um, And yeah, and I'm I'm going to talk about the sort of politics and the political environment rather than kind of getting into detailed stuff about Grenfell or whatever. Um, The first thing to say is so i I've never actually been like a proper housing reporter i've not like done four years inside housing or some such. Um, I think the reason I became interested in housing is because I'm one of those awful people who owns their own flat because of a combination of inheritance and a generous <coughs> mother and you know, being an only child has kind of worked in my favor here um and I think my growing obsession with housing stems from the fact that I feel quite a lot of guilt about that, and so the low level shame that mixed with irritation that in this day and age that's kind of the only way of getting on the housing ladder in London unless you're an investment banker or a corporate lawyer or some such um all of which would explain why it became a topic of interest to me only in about 2013 after I was already a homeowner and I found myself getting increasingly irritated with the way my generation was struggling with this issue and I could see those coming up behind me had it a lot worse than us. So, over a couple of years, I wrote a series of increasingly shouty blogs on the subject. I, I think I, I write best when I'm angry. So, in 2015, I found myself sharing a panel with Alok Sharma, long before he was housing minister, after which he told me he found me much less scary than he expected, which is a victory of sorts, I suppose. Um, so, yeah, eventually, I, found myself, I was approached by a literary agent about maybe writing a book about housing, Um, And we went through four or five drafts of that and talking to various editors. The only bit I ever actually wrote was the introduction in which I I talked a lot about... I don't know if anyone was at the the Homes for Britain rally in March 2015, the National Housing Federation event in the run-up to the general election. Um, I was sat in the front row, which is where they like to put the journalists for these things, which is a terrible decision because it always means the most bored-looking people in the room are sat right at the front staring at Twitter... Um this is a huge event with you know probably a couple of thousand people there in Westminster Central Hall. There was a community choir, there was a steel band, probably about ten feet from my head. Um but the the kind of star attraction was they got all the the politici- politicians from all the major parties to come and give their pitch, basically. So Nigel Farage got booed. Probably more probably more embarrassing than that, Grant Shapps actually got laughed at. Um and you know all this was part of this campaign, the aim of which was to get politicians to make a commitment to solve the housing crisis within a generation i, I don 't know if anyone can see the problem with setting that as a goal um, it 's quite easy to get politicians to commit to solving a problem within the next thirty years because they 're all gone they can 't it 's too long a time scale, and it doesn 't really help much in the short term so yeah, so I, was, I was working on a book proposal, I was very excited about the topic and I kind of thought maybe this was the moment we were finally going to deal with this, but none of the big parties in 2015 made a remotely serious offer on housing. Um, a couple of them quoted some quite big numbers for house building targets, but you know, without any sort of policy to back that up, obviously they might as well have been promising free unicorn egg for every voter, it's just completely meaningless, right? What was worse from the perspective of both that rally and my own literary ambitions was that out there in the world, nobody much seemed to care very much about the housing issue. I remember there was a YouGov poll which put it at something like sixth, I think, on the list of voter concerns, which was, that's significantly up from earlier elections, but it's still way down below, below the topics that actually dominate general elections. Um... So, so it wasn't the housing election and I couldn't sell my book, which, you know, at least I couldn't sell it to anyone willing to pay me enough money to, to bother to write it. Um, the last rejection slip I had for that was in May 2016 and I felt a bit sad but also quite relieved and then the month later Brexit happened and suddenly I found myself feeling bloody delighted that I wasn't going to be spending the next year of my life working on this book while the world burnt around me. Um. I still thought at that point that we'd get to a point where housing became a significant issue in British politics, but I kind of thought maybe we're a couple of election cycles off. I really need to stop making political predictions because I'm catastrophically bad at them. Because if you look at the results of the 2017 election, I think actually it was a surprisingly big factor in in what went on. Um, Steve Aikhurst from Shelter, who the head of policy I'm sure many of you will know, Wrote us a very good blog, digging through the stats uh, in the election result, looking looking at how people in different tenures had had voted. Um, a couple of numbers that are worth picking out: the Tories have consistently led polls among homeowners for you know as long as anyone can remember. Right, that's just that's baked in. But if you look at private renters, they've seen their position collapse in 2010. The Tories still led Labour in that demographic by six points, which is, you know, that's, that's almost surprising in retrospect. But the Tories were winning the private renter vote in 2010. By 2015, they were trailing Labour by 11 points. Last month, they were trailing Labour by 23 points. We headlined the blog Did Renters Cost Theresa May Her Majority? And, um, you know, there's an unwritten rule in journalism that any headline with a question mark in it, the answer will be no. I think we actually broke that rule, because I'm pretty sure that the answer to that question is, is yes. I think, in, in some ways, I was kind of surprised. I mean, a lot of people, I think, expected the Tories to get ahead of this one, because, you know, they've historically been so big on home ownership that we, we kind of optimistically thought maybe they would pull their finger out. A number of people told me they'd expected a big offer on housing to appear in the Tory manifesto. That never materialised, there was very little in there. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think housing really swung the election because Labour's offers were also pretty weak. And also, let's be honest, no-one no, no one out there is voting based on land use policy. That's just not what people get hit up about. And I don't think we're even close to the point where the government, any government really, is going to start coming forward with serious plans to fix the, the shortfall in housing numbers. Because if, if such plans were easy or cheap or politically cost-free... We would have already done them. In the short term, almost anything you can do to address the, the housing shortage is going to be a vote loser, right? You can't review the green belt. You can't review house, uh, height restrictions. You can't rebuild the council estates. Any one of those policies is going to create a lot of angry people long before anyone actually benefits from them. So I fear that proper solutions to the housing supply crisis are in the short term a net vote loser. And you know this is about even getting into the buy-to-let bubble and the fact that any significant reduction in house prices, even if we did know how to achieve that, we'd be swapping a housing crisis for a pensions one. So I still think an actual proper fix to this problem is a long way off. But I do think resentment caused by generational inequality is starting to make itself known. My sense is we've kind of hit the limit of of the electoral strategy of offering goodies for older people while telling the young, sorry, there's no money left, it's austerity for you guys. There needs to be some kind of offer for young voters. There is a widespread sense, I think, that, that old people have been coddled in recent elections and young people have been screwed. I think the most visible manifestation of the anger about this so far is is the debate over scrapping tuition fees, which, you know, if you look at it from a sort of wonkish perspective, it's obviously a really stupid way of spending 12 billion quid. And yet it has enormous amounts of support because there's so much anger about the inequality. But I think all this is part of a much bigger problem, which is that the implicit contract of of capitalism, certainly British-style capitalism, is that if you work hard, you can have nice things. And that's, that's not really been true recently, and you know, it, it, in a lot of the country, it doesn't matter how hard you work, you're probably still not going to attain a basic level of security that your parents' generation could take for granted. And I don't think the political class have entirely woken up to this, even now. Um, a, a housing campaigner once told me that they've had real problems getting anyone in Westminster to take the plight of renters seriously because they still have this idea that renters are students or people in their early 20s who live in house shares and there's no point doing anything for them because in a couple of years they're all going to buy houses and become homeowners and probably vote Tory and so now that is a problem that, that will solve itself just as people get older. That's not true anymore. Especially in the South, a lot of renters now are over 30. Some of them are married, Some of them even, many of them have kids and this is a new phenomenon in recent British political history. And the government is still completely ignoring these guys. Um, there was another stat that's been doing the rounds over the last week from, I think it's the LSE who drew it out of the, the, the English housing survey, I think. In 1993, the number of 20-somethings who own their own home was 50%. Two decades later, we're down to 20%. Among 30-somethings in 1993, 70% own their own home. By 2013, it had fallen to under half. Uh, my colleague Stephen Bush the other day tweeted, why on earth do these millennials vote for Corbyn? It's a real free pipe problem. It's just, it's blindingly obvious why why young people are annoyed and are not voting Tories, in, Tory in droves. And I don't think the party has really woken up to that. I think so far there's a lot of frustration that they're voting for Jeremy Corbyn and his magic money tree. And there's this sort of unspoken, or occasionally actually spoken out loud, idea that young people are voting... For Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party, because they're a bit stupid, because they, they don't really remember, they don't remember the seventies, they don't know what's going on. Um, and actually, I think if you look at it from a rational economic self-interest point of view, there may not be a good argument to vote Labour, but there are certainly very good arguments if you're twenty-five not to vote Conservative. If I was a Tory, though, the figures that would be keeping me awake at night are those which show that people in their thirties and even forties are still voting for uh, Labour more than Tories. And, you know, that's obviously not entirely about housing. There's all sorts of other stuff in there. The stuff about austerity, the cuts to public services, just Brexit's probably in the mix. There's all sorts of stuff. But I don't think the party can entirely address that without addressing the housing problem. They need to come up with an offer, not necessarily magically increasing ownership as they kind of once sort of prided themselves on, but, you know, an offer that makes housing more more available and more secure to, to people who wouldn't otherwise be able to afford it. The easiest thing to do on that score, I think, would probably involve sorting out the private rental sector. I don't think rent caps are a very sensible option for all sorts of reasons, but I think there are things they can do around regulation of landlords, longer tenancies, just generally making... The private rented sector, cheaper and more secure and just, you know, a kind of place that you could, you could raise a child in the private rented sector, which at the moment is just almost impossible because you never know when you're going to be priced out. You never know. They might, you might be forced to pull the kids out of school. It's just a very disruptive tenure to raise a family in. And I think that needs to change. I, I, don't think, I think I'm still getting the sense from the Conservatives, certainly, that they're, they're still shrugging their shoulders and saying, well, what can you do? And I think if they want to win an election, with a majority at least, that's probably not electorally sustainable. So maybe we will see some kind of offer on renting in the next few years. Whether anyone has the nerve to tackle the broader supply problem, or or the supply problem is, is obviously part of an even bigger problem, which is the fact that in one half of the country we have jobs, and the other half we have affordable housing, and it's very difficult bringing those two together. That's, that's a much harder challenge, so I'm much less convinced we're going to see any serious action on that one coming through anytime soon. But I think maybe we will finally see something on rents this term. We'll see. Um, you will notice you I've. i the, the private rental sector. Private yeah, yeah. You'll, probably, you'll notice I've not really mentioned Grenfell at all, um, and I'm kind of tacking that on as a sort of epilogue to, to my sort of rant about electoral politics. Um, partly I've been avoiding it because I feel we are still getting to the bottom of this and I'm a bit scared of me speaking partly because it rapidly descends into matters of you know building regulation and housing revenue accounts which I don't really feel massively qualified to talk about and frankly you guys will all know far more about it than I do so I don't want to get into the specifics but but it clearly is a very big moment for the housing debate I think just just the whole symbolism of dozens of people dying in a fire brought on by poor quality public housing in the richest borough, in the richest city in this country, is just beyond horrifying. Like, the the moment that, that really got to me, I have to say, was when they, they said they won't even have a full body count till the end of the year. That's just... It's not even that the guys who died in there are statistics, it's that there are absence of statistics. And that just, that's just terrifying. It feels like an awful symbol of both, you know economic inequality and government ineptitude. And I think there are going to be whole books written about this moment. Um, but, you know, a couple of quick thoughts on on the political impact of that, I think, um, and things that might change. Firstly, I feel like one of the big stories of the last 40 years in housing has been the state withdrawing from the housing debate. You know, obviously, as you all know, once upon a time, the state was a major builder and, you know, the major landlord... And housing was kind of... It was one of the main things councils were for, right? Like, if you were a visionary architect in the 1960s and you wanted to reshape the world, going to work for a council housing department was not a crazy thing to do. Um, And that's just all gone. Like, councils have stopped building, not not in, in large part not because they chose to, but because they've been forced to. And that has had a massive impact on the fact we now have a chronic undersupply in housing, and worse than that, I think the Grenfell tragedy highlights the fact that even the stuff they're still supposed to be doing, they don't really see it as part of their job. Or at least some, some councils don't. Um, obviously, the Royal Borough of Kensington, Chelsea, has one of the worst records on this score. If you just look at the number of houses they've built recently, I think it's... In, in the last decade, I think I'm right in saying it has the third worst record in the country. And they might say, well, you know, we're very densely populated. And yeah, but so is Islington and Tower Hamlets, and they've both managed more. Um, it just looks like they didn't see housing their residents and making sure they have a decent quality of housing was, was their job. These guys are sat on a fortune and they've been crimping on stuff like the cladding. and that's, It's just sick-making, you know? Um, so that leads me on to my, my second point on it, which is I think we've been... In fact, I've been doing it in this speech so far. We ignore social housing as a tenure, as a point for discussion. Housing has risen up the agenda in the last... Few years, it's discussed a lot more in politics and in the press now than it was in 2010, for example. But when we talk about housing, we tend to talk about house prices. We may now talk about how house prices going up forever is bad rather than good, but we still talk about house prices. Or, you know, at a push, we talk about bad, bad private landlords. And I think this reflects who is taking part in this debate. It's the fact... You know, we're talking about housing more now because it's having a knock-on... It's having a direct effect on the chattering classes and the fact there are now people in quite prominent roles in politics or the media who still can't get on the housing ladder, who are still subject to the whims of a landlord, and that wasn't true 10 years ago. So I think that's why it's come to the fore. But we're still not talking about the the sixth of the population living in social housing. That is still going completely under-discussed. Um, As I said a moment ago, I, I am aware I am as guilty of this as anyone and I feel slightly embarrassed I don't know more about the technical side of social housing than I do. But at least I'm not the new head of the Royal Borough of Kensington and Chelsea who just said she's never been in a tower block. Which is, you know, that's kind of shocking but I very much doubt she's alone in public life in being able to say that. Lastly, I feel like we have no language for talking about the right to be in a place that isn't about literally owning it. We've financialized housing to such an extent that when we talk about it we talk about house prices and we talk about housing as an asset. We don't talk about it as public infrastructure or a part of the public services. We've, um, I think this has undermined our sort of notion of, of place. So the idea of a home becomes about, the idea of a right to a home rather, is about what you can afford rather than where you were born or where you live. Already in the Grenfell debate, we're starting to see people, mostly, thankfully, not politicians, but we are starting to see people questioning why the survivors should have the right to remain in Kensington. And the logic is, well, I couldn't afford this. Why should they have this? Um, you know, this, is, this feels pretty sick, because obviously we're talking about the survivors of an absolutely horrific tragi- tragedy, probably brought on by government neglect. But it's an argument I think we hear many times in many different contexts that kind of dominates the housing debate. I think the fact that getting private housing in London has become so expensive and so difficult has weakened the argument for subsidised public housing. It has made it much harder to make the case that people do have a right to be in the place they were born. They do have a right to stay near their family. I feel, I hope that maybe this is a moment where we kind of finally own up to the fact this is not a sustainable position, especially not in London, because there will always be people who need housing in London, but can't afford London house prices. I don't think it's reasonable to expect all our nurses or retail workers in this city to commute in from Luton or the Medway towns. We have to be making an offer for them too. Um, So In conclusion, I kind of think we need to change how we talk about housing. We need to stop talking about social housing as the inferior option. And we need to change how we view a council's role and how they view their residents. I think it would be useful if they could see their residents as customers and voters again, not just kind of these annoying people they kind of have to do the minimum for. And I stand by my now fairly long-term position which is that if we're ever going to really get out of this mess I think the state needs to get its hands dirty and start building again because I mean it's abundantly clear by now that if the market was going to provide it would have already done it if the market weren't the government must thank you selling a little or a lot
0: Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
1: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life.
2: It's me again, just for a change. As I said before, before that speech, uh, there was a discussion afterwards, conducted under under Chatham House rules, which means we can't really report any of it. But in the name of fairness, I should say that uh, several of the the housing policy experts in the room uh, did question some of the reporting of, of Kensington and Chelsea's role in all this. The, the consensus was that the the, the borough council has has been pretty disastrous in in uh, the aftermath that they didn't handle it well but there was a feeling actually that maybe some of the stories of of neglect have been overdone and that actually there are a lot of people in the council both elected members and the officials who who care a lot more for for their residents than they've been given credit for and also that uh, the new leader of of Kensington Council, who who I, I mentioned in passing there for, for her comments that she's never been inside a tower block, there was actually some some faith that she's a decent, committed public servant. And you know, these, to be clear, these were not this was not a room full of of, of Tories. These these were uh, often people from from the political left. I think, but they just felt some of the media coverage, which which I was basing many of my comments on, had been a little unfair. Uh, I just thought it was worth worth owning up to that. Incidentally, another idea I had for our fiftieth podcast was to get both Stephanie and Barbara back, and also a third person who we would pretend to have been a co host, even though they never actually had been. That's a that's a that's a pretty niche joke, but you know, I I thought I'd throw it in for the, the four or five of you who may like that. Anyway, I didn't ask Twitter a question this week, but what I did do is I told them I'd be presenting alone and I suggested that they tweet me interesting things to read out because, you know, what could possibly go wrong with that as a strategy? First up, there's longtime Skylines listener, Julia, who tweets his angry sigh. She asked me a whole bunch of questions, actually. She she asked me my favorite articles, what the worst thing I've ever written was, what I would do to fix the British transport system, uh, who, who the hottest mayor was. She wanted me to rank the hotness of mayors. Um, I might actually get Stephen Bush back on at some point so we can argue about that one. But anyway, eventually I I told Julia that really I just wanted some jokes. Um, She said, I'm I'm quoting now. Oh, okay, Die, bitch. I hate you. So, you know, thanks. Thanks for that, Julia. Uh, She did also write a fantastic article for us a couple of weeks ago on on the history of our home city of Rio de Janeiro, by the way, which you should should really read that. It's a really great piece. What else have we got? Uh, My wife, Sarah, wrote in to say, shall I call in and heckle you? Which I, I sort of pretended I hadn't seen that one. Ben B, who tweets his Cinema Shoebox, asks, John, why haven't you ranked the Nuts free regions yet? John? Well, that's a good question. Well, this is quite a good one. Schroeduck, which is, you know, like Schrodinger, but with a duck. Schroeduck points out that creating the West of England combined authority on top of the existing mayoralty means that the South West now has a large pair of Bristols. Yep, yep, that happened. Uh, but yeah, here's, here's a here's a nice one. I think it's the end of a nice one. Andy Walton writes... John, you big podcast loner. If it wasn't for your obsessive love of tube maps, I'd have far more time on my hands. Happy 50th. So, you know, thanks, man. That means a lot. Anyway, we've got a lot more stuff planned. Uh, things, uh, I've already taped some of this, by the way, so I can tell you definitively that things we're going to be talking about in the upcoming episodes include city-states, air pollution, uh, the problems faced by the cities of Africa, Also hoping to do a joint episode, or maybe even two, with an American Transport podcast called The Overhead Wire, which I haven't got that on tape yet because I keep failing to to sort it out. So sorry, Jeff, we will get that one sorted. Um, And yes, if all goes to plan, then at some point soon, Stephanie will come back for the odd episode. And yeah, so it's exciting times, really. But, you know, I, I do say this a lot, but I mean it. Please do, you know... You're all listening out there. Please write in to tell us what you want us to be talking about, or rather what you want me to be talking about at this point, especially if you're one of the minority of our listeners outside Britain or the United States. I, I kind of want to know, well, firstly, I kind of want to know why you're listening at all, but I would just like to hear from you and your views on, on the podcast and what we should be talking about. Uh, I'm I'm really easy to contact. I'm on Twitter as at John Ellidge, which is, my name is impervious to accurate spelling, so I'll just spell it out for you. It's J O N. E double L E D G E. It's the double M that tends to tends to throw people. I'm also on Facebook as John Edge writes, and if you Google, you can find at least three different emails for me, which is a bit a bit depressing. It kind of removes the mystique, doesn't it? But there we are. One last thing: if you could leave us a review on on iTunes, or even just just tell your friends, help us spread the word a little bit, because you know we'd like more people listening to this podcast. There's like. I think there's probably more people already listening to this podcast than in many ways that this podcast actually deserves, but you know i'm a, I'm building an empire here. I'd like more, so go on help us out. you'll be doing me a favor so yeah that's that's the show that's 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 the that's the John Eldge special. Sorry about that uh next week, I promise I will have some other people on again. It won't just be me, and uh yeah, I mean this sincerely. thanks for listening.